0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Second Peter, Chapter One. If you were to ask somebody, what does it mean to be a Christian? How can you tell someone is a Christian? What does that life look like? You get a lot of different kinds of answers. A lot of times, what you would get is a list of things that you either do or you don't do. In other words, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, that's a person that doesn't swear a person that doesn't drink, a person that goes to church on Sunday, is kind to his mother, things like that. You hear that a lot, especially when you're asking just the man on the street. I think if we were to ask anyone in this room, probably, what does it mean to be a Christian, the answer would go on to Christ Himself, right? In other words, Jesus Christ would be in the answer. He is the answer. And that's really what makes us a Christian. But there is a relationship between our faith in Christ and the life that we live. And a while back, I said I was interested in preaching maybe a few sermons on the role and function of works in the life of the believer. Some of you might have been here and maybe others weren't. But because we're spending time in Second Peter, and it's been so, I think, really fruitful, the time spent there in chapter 1, where Peter is intent on reminding those believers he's writing to of certain things, and he has this phrase that really stood out to me, and it really made me want to learn something. That's a great place to be when you're reading the Bible, Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, all you do is kind of confirm the things that you already know. It's like, oh yeah, that's good, that's good. But other times you'll find yourself reading something and say, I don't understand. I don't really know what he means here. I don't understand how this works. And I think that's a great place to be because it can get you digging and saying, I'm not there yet. In other words, I haven't learned everything there is to learn. God is still working on me and still teaching me. And we need to be teachable as his people. And the phrase that stood out to me was in verse um, 5 after giving all these great truths about all that God has done in saving these people that he's writing to and in bringing them into a blessed position, even to the point that they're partakers of the divine nature, which is just amazing to think about. That human beings, everyone wants to be a God but we have become partakers of the divine nature that's amazing right there's a little bit of that even in the lie of satan all the way back in eden when he said if you eat it you'll become as gods right and there's a desire in our heart for godliness and to be we want to be like god and there's a good, that's a good thing in some ways we want to be like god but we always have to be willing to submit ourselves under his authority but the mystery that we, creatures of dust, could somehow become partakers of the divine nature. That's amazing. But he moves from this great truth into this statement and he says, for this very reason, make every effort to, and in this translation, to supplement your faith. Some of you might say to add to your faith. And he gives a list of seven qualities that are just really great things. But what I was stuck on is, how can I make every effort to do this? It sounds too much like legalism. What happens if I'm making every effort and I fail? Does that mean I'm less of a Christian, God doesn't love me? You know, there's a lot of traps that people can slip into as they begin to ask those questions, how shall we then live? Um, the focus will shift too much on works, works, works. I'm earning God's favor. And so I just, I'll recap briefly what I said in the last message uh, because I don't quite remember it myself. It was too long ago. But I said what works are not in the life of the believer, they are not the basis of our salvation. It is not works that save you. And we have that clearly in Ephesians 2. It is not of works. It doesn't matter how good a person is, is, right? How patient, how excellent, how knowledgeable, all these things, how loving. They cannot see God apart from Christ. And so works are not the basis of our salvation. And they are also not the building blocks, basically, of our salvation. It's not like we start out in faith, but then every work we do, we're kind of adding somehow to our salvation, getting more and more, quote unquote, saved or more and more loved by God. He loved you the minute you turn and say, Lord, I need you. You're just as saved. And that's why Paul was able to say, you're already glorified, right? Remember all those that he called, he justified, all those he justified, he glorified. You're just as well as glorified. You will be perfected one day. But in God's mind, He looks at you as if you're perfected. He sees you as that spotless bride. And that's beautiful. You don't have to earn His favor. You're not coming home from a hard day of work and and just opening the door and God's in there. I hope I did okay today. I hope He's going to love me today. It's never like that. He always is looking on us, because of Christ and His work, with love. right? And so we can rest in that but it is not a lazy rest. It can't be a lazy rest. And I believe sometimes in the church we overcorrect because of our fear of legalism to the point that we say works are really irrelevant for the, in the life of the believer. And that's what I was trying to steer us clear of. And so I said that works are the uh, product of saving faith. They are the proof of that saving faith. And they are, in fact, the purpose, or one important purpose of that faith. So we see in Ephesians 2, you're not saved of works, but you're saved for works. And some of us were talking at the Bible study that, you know, Jesus Christ saved you. He died. He rose again. He called you. He reached out to you to save you for good works. Is he going to fail to get what he wants? No, he never fails. He will get good works out of every believer, including you and including me, right? That's amazing. And we need to, I think, feel a sense of urgency to be good. I tell Maurice, be good. Sometimes I just say to him, be good, you know. (laughs) Do right. We need to feel a sense of urgency that does not come from the fear of hell but comes from somewhere else. And I believe that we can find that in Second Peter. And so we have this make every effort to supplement your faith with excellence or virtue. So I'd like to eventually talk about each of these seven. And so for today, just to talk about excellence or virtue. You know, before we get to that, if you could look at this Verse in Philippians 2. It's also been quite on my mind as we talked on Thursday and as I've been thinking through these things and praying through them on my own. It's such a really powerful verse, but it's also a paradoxical verse. It's one of those that uh, is hard to understand, and I think if I were a worldly person and I read this and I was a smart worldly person, I would say, well, this doesn't make any sense. It's a contradiction. It's just proof that the Bible is uh, full of contradictions. But for the godly person, they'll say the foolishness of man is God's wisdom, and we've just got to accept that this is true. And so in Philippians 2, Paul is speaking to people who were being good when he was around, but then when he left, they were slipping into all kind of failure, or they were tempted to not be quite so good, because a lot of times we're good for the wrong reasons, and we do our works for the wrong reasons, maybe to please a, an important person that we like, or, or um, that uh, uh, person you look up to when they're around, you do really nice things, but then when they're not around, you're like, thank goodness I can be myself, which when we say be myself, I mean my lazy self, right? <laughs> We're two selves. You know, you can be yourself, and that means just kick back and watch the TV and just, uh, just say, uh, you know, just veg out. But you can also be yourself, your godly self that God has created you to be and run that race, right? So let's not try to, uh, let's not be so quick to be ourselves. But it says um, in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, and this is the key, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And that, again, is a very hard sentence to understand. Because he's telling them, work, because God is working in you. And we might say, well, it's kind of like I'm helping God. So God is working, and then I'm going to work and kind of work alongside of Him, But Paul clears it up, and he says, and it's not that. He goes on to say, God is at work in you, not just to make you want to do good, but even to do it. So, somehow, God is at work in me, and He is the one doing these good works, but I also have to do good works. And I don't understand it, but we have to accept it. We have to somehow feel the urgency, I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in me. God is the one doing these works. And that's why in 2 Peter, he's able to say, God has granted you all things that you need and then basically said, so add some things. (laughs) That doesn't make sense, right? And he's granted you all these things supplement your faith. Right? We're not adding to our salvation, but we are manifesting our salvation as we work. I'm sure that's maybe confused everybody more than clarified, but let's at least accept that there is a great false teaching out there on both sides of this issue. The one that the Galatians faced where they said... People were coming in and saying, if you don't do this and this and this, God is not looking at you in favor. And they had to reject that, because that so-called gospel, because it was not a gospel. And on the other hand, the one the Corinthians faced, where basically, <clears throat> you're free to do whatever you want. Because God took care of you. It had nothing to do with the way you live. And Paul had to pull the reins on these people and say, live right. And I think Peter is saying the same thing here. It's why he says, Be holy because the one who called you is holy. Don't be holy so that He'll call you. Be holy, for the one who called you is holy. And I believe that there is a call for Christians to supplement their faith with virtue. And I like the word excellence, because it's the same word that we see in verse 3, that God called us to His own glory and excellence. Or virtue. So the word, the word is the same. He called us to His excellence. His virtue. His greatness in every aspect. Therefore, be great. Be excellent. Be virtuous. When I was a child, I went to a church. And you know how churches will have um, a little sign and they add to it and they change it all the time? Well, we had a sign and we never changed it. And it said, only sinners worship here. We know what they mean, right? In other words, there's a a real desire in that statement, only sinners worship here. There's a desire to be welcoming, to be open, to say we're not perfect, right? Come on in. We're only sinners like you, but hidden underneath of that, I believe, is an a little bit of lackadaisical or apathy toward righteousness. And I've told the story before about I was listening to the radio on New Year's Eve and someone was giving a prayer for the coming new year. And in his prayer he said, we pray for the next year. And he said, Lord, we know we're going to sin. We're going to sin every day. We're going to sin every minute. We pray that you'll forgive us. There's too much ease with our sin we're too at home with it sometimes and we need to as it says here make every effort to be virtuous to be excellent and so as I said before when I said I was going to preach a few sermons on these I said I wanted to look at the life of Joseph as an example of someone so that we might be able to make it practical how can I in fact be more diligent as it says later or how can I make every effort to be virtuous, or how can I make every effort to be excellent? And I think we find in Joseph all seven of these qualities, and so we can just flip over to Genesis and try to point out a couple things. When I use the word excellent and virtuous, I'm really thinking of two different things. Two different things, and they fall under basically a moral excellence and an excellence in responsibility. And I feel like, as believers, sometimes we slip into a complacency when it comes to our moral excellence and a complacency when it comes to our responsibilities. And you see neither of these in Joseph. And I want myself and my wife, my son, my family, us as believers, to... Make every effort to be excellent. You know, that word that Peter uses is not a very common word, a Greek word, in the New Testament. In fact, he's really the only one that uses it much. And this is the only time it's used for human virtue. It's always mostly used for God, His excellence. But the Greek writers used it all the time. In other words, the worldly Greek writers, they were always talking about virtue, and 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 uh, excellence be the best right i think of someone like ben franklin if you know anything about ben franklin he really was an interesting guy one of the things that he he really wanted to ha- be a virtuous person but if you know much about him he was a great sinner <laughs> all the time and one of his te- tactics for being a good person was he won. he came up with a list of vir- so-called virtues and uh he started checking them off at the end of the day right how was I when it comes to not drinking too much? Uh, Pretty good, you know, so I get a check mark. How was I when it comes to swearing? Well, I wasn't very good, so I won't get the check mark. He had this elaborate system. But the Greeks were like that. They felt there were certain qualities about human beings that were somehow good. They couldn't exactly say why. Some of them said it went back to the gods or whatever, how they behaved. But, of course, uh, that failed. Some of the philosophers just said there's just something... There's a way to live that's right and we should just really try hard to be virtuous. And Peter comes along and he says the answer to your problem is in God Himself. His virtues, His excellence. But have we lost that? I don't know. You know, I think we do fairly well as believers in certain areas of virtue. And then other times we are Uh, we tend to say, well, that's just my personality. Um, You know, I am, and I'll fill in the blank with some kind of vice. Vice would be the opposite of virtue, right? I am, say, a. I just tend to be a little snippy with people. I'm kind of just, you know, I tell it like it is, and sometimes it comes out rude, but that's just who I am. I'm honest. We kind of usually, we turn it into a virtue. But there's a, I think, a desire for God to make us Strive for more and more moral excellence, and the place that we find this in Joseph's life, especially, is in his relationship with uh, Potiphar's wife. So let's look at. I had it and then it flipped. <clears throat> Thirty-nine. You know, I think if there's one quality that defines Joseph, it's, it's excellence, right? Wasn't he excellent in all he did? Um, you looked at him, and he was just a stellar person. We say oftentimes he's the best type of Christ, because we don't see any fault in him. Some people see fault in certain areas of Joseph's life. Maybe he's a little arrogant when it came to his brothers. But of all the people in the Old Testament, he really does shine out. It, you know as in the midst of all this weird this terrible stuff about Dinah for example which comes up um, in in Genesis uh, right around the same part just terrible things that the sons of, of Jacob did but Joseph shines out and that's the way the believer should be we should be shining out as excellent in all things so one of the ways that he's shown was this relationship with um, Potiphar's wife. So in chapter 39, we see in verse 6 that Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Did he make every effort to be handsome in form and appearance? No, that's not what we're talking about. He was excellent in form and appearance. He was also excellent in his father's favor. Did he try to be excellent in that way? No. You know, there are certain excellencies of Joseph that are similar to the excellencies of Christ that were not, um, well, I don't want to get off topic, but this is not really where our focus is. So you may be a good-looking person or a not-that-good-looking person, right? So it's not like we try to be excellent in that way. There may be a a way that we need to try to take care of of our bodies, and there's an excellence to that. But there are certain things that we need to make every effort on, and one of them comes up in the next verse. So in verse 7, after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. So here we see he falls into this particular temptation. Because he was so handsome in form and appearance, and because he had become so important, he enters into a period of temptation. There are characteristics about you and characteristics about your life situation that will bring you into times of tribulation and testing and temptation. It may be in the area of lust and adultery and things like that, but it may not be. You may become relatively uh, successful in your business. There are temptations that come with that. You may become relatively unsuccessful with your business. There are temptations that come along with that. Right? You might um, move to a different place. Temptations come along with that. Everything that will become true about you as you go through your life, Satan can use to test your level of excellence. Moral excellence. Virtue. So for Joseph, it was his looks and his success. And so he was faced with a choice. <clears throat> Every, there were no probably not going to be any consequence except immediate pleasure for these sins. And so it wasn't going to be enough for him to say, is it worth it? Because in the end, he might be able to say, yeah, it's worth it, because I, if I weigh my, the pros and cons, you know, i'll never get caught etc that wasn't enough he had to rely on something else so how could joseph make every effort to be virtuous in this situation the first thing he did he stood his ground to the woman and he clarified what the sin would mean so we need to also be clear in our mind what it means when we are not morally virtuous it's not that we're just sinning against someone, right? It's not that we're just falling somehow short of people's expectations. He has said, I am sinning against God. So in chapter 9, it's, sure, he's sinning against Potiphar, but maybe Potiphar's a terrible person. And a lot of times it's easy for us to rationalize. Well, he deserves it, you know? I'm not, that's not enough for me. You're sinning against your boss when you seal, steal a little bit off the top, skim off the top of the slush fund or whatever it might be. But he's a terrible person, right? Or he's, a, he's an ungodly person. What does he deserve? Or he has billions of dollars. He doesn't need it. He won't even miss it. He doesn't even care. He knows I'm doing it. There are a lot of ways that our rationalization won't take us there. It may take you there sometimes to virtue, but it will fall short eventually. Joseph needed something more, and that's why he had to say, how could I do this great sin, wickedness and sin against God? So he resisted. But then in verse 11, one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And now is he going to say, how can I, he's given me everything in his hand. How how can I do this great wickedness? No, it's not time for that. It's time for him to leave, to flee, to run, to cut off whatever it is that is causing the temptation. And there may be times for you. We need to take extreme measures, extreme measures sometimes, to be virtuous. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Because some of you have a secret sin in your life, and you've become very comfortable with it. And you, maybe not even comfortable with it, you don't like it, but you're like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. It's, uh, it's just part of, my, part of life. Nobody's perfect. And you've begun to rationalize it. No one will ever see it. It's night, dark, whatever it might be. There's different rationalizations. There's a time to stand up and rationalize and say, no, this is a sin against God. There's also a time to cut it off, to cut off the source. And there is, there are things to do sometimes to avoid these sins. Tell the boss, listen, I don't want access to the slush front cut off your internet connection and only use internet at the library and work. There are things to do to be virtuous. And sometimes we just aren't willing to make every effort. Sometimes we're just willing to make some effort, maybe not much effort. But I think it's important. And so if there's an area in your life where you have become too comfortable or complacent about your sin, pray to the Lord, Lord, I want to make every effort. Show me the way. He will honor that prayer. Because he's the one who works in you, not just to will, in other words, to want to, but to do it. Isn't that great? So he gave him the strength. And then life was great for Joseph after that. And nothing was ever wrong. <laughs> That's not the story, right? He's thrown in prison. You know? Everything good is taken from him. It's difficult. More difficulties come in. Don't expect when you're living the virtuous life, the excellent life, that everything will go well. Sometimes for Joseph, things went great. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes he was in the pit. Sometimes he was in the palace. Sometimes he was in the prison, right? Sometimes he was in his father's love. Wherever he was, he was showing moral excellence. Not just that, but the other one is excellence and responsibility. And so I think they go hand in hand. But there are certain things that we can do as believers to be excellent in every way. And it goes beyond just not sinning. So Joseph, wasn't, it's not just that he didn't sin. Everywhere he went, people put him in charge because he was so good at everything. Right? So whenever he was in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's like, man, everything you touch turns to gold. You're just amazing. I'm going to put you in charge of everything. Then he goes to prison. And when he's in prison, the guy's like, wow, you know, I don't even have to watch the inmates when you're here. You just do everything you do is good. So he puts him in charge again. And then when he comes out of prison and tells the dream to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's like, you know what? I'm going to put you in charge. Isn't that great? Does that mean that every godly believer is going to be put in charge? I don't think that's what it means. But I believe that every, just to wrap up here, I believe that every role of responsibility you've been given by the Lord, you can either make every effort to be excellent in that responsibility, or you can say, it doesn't really matter. It's not really that important. It has nothing to do with my faith. So think about all the different roles in your life. And one helpful way to do that is to say if your life was a play, what would your character be called? You know, sometimes it's the son. Sometimes it's the the manager. Sometimes it's the student. Whatever it is, there are certain roles that you're filling in your life, the grandfather. And I think in each of those roles, you can strive for excellence as a believer. And you're doing it as under the Lord. It goes beyond just not sinning. Right? It means if I have a test, I'm gonna strive for excellence. And when I get that C, I'm gonna say that is my grade that God has given me. I'm using all of my potential and then I trust Him for the outcome. Right? That's different than the person who has that test and says, Well, you know, it doesn't really matter. Oh, I need is a C to pass. And so I just kind of twiddle my thumbs. I take the test, I get a C. It's a very different C, isn't it? You don't strive for excellence. That doesn't mean you're gonna be the smartest person in class. You're gonna be the smartest you that you could be, right? In other words, you're gonna put all of your effort towards those responsibilities. And I think that's what makes the believer the best student, teachers would love to have them in class, the best employee, you know? It doesn't mean things will always go right for you, but as believers, we need to not only strive for moral excellence, but strive to be found excellent in every way. And Peter, the same Peter, tells people, who will be against you if you're zealous for what is good? That's just a, It just makes sense. Most people are going to say, wow, I, I mean, I don't really like the guy, but what can I say against him? He's, you know, he's excellent. And then Peter goes on to say, but if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, etc., etc., etc. There will be times, even with somebody like Joseph, how could you be against Joseph? Well, lots of people were, weren't they? His brothers, Potiphar, lots of people. But let us as believers make a commitment to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, to supplement our faith with excellence. And I believe as we do that, we will be found to not be ineffective or fruitless in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we'll be able to go on for Him to His glory and honor. Amen. Amen.